The subject matter of this podcast will address difficult topics, multiple forms of violence, and identity-based discrimination and harassment. We acknowledge that this content may be difficult and have listed specific content warnings in each episode description to help create a positive, safe experience for all listeners. In this country, 31 million crimes, 31 million crimes are reported every year. That is one every second. Out of that, every 24 minutes, there is a murder. Every five minutes, there is a rape. Every two to five minutes, there is a sexual assault. Every nine seconds in this country, a woman is assaulted by someone who told her that he loved her, by someone who told her it was her fault, by someone who tries to tell the rest of us it's none of our business. And I am proud to stand here today with each of you to call that perpetrator a liar. Welcome to the podcast on Crimes Against Women. I'm Maria McMullen. Samuel Little is considered America's most prolific serial killer, having confessed to the murders of 93 women. Little died in jail in December of 2020, leaving many unanswered questions about his victims, as well as his motive for the 35-year killing spree. But a new docuseries in an upcoming book may provide some answers and insights. Behold the Monster by author and true crime expert Jillian Lauren will release in 2022. Lauren was key to extracting Little's confessions and perhaps knew him better than any other investigator working the case. We invited Miss Lauren to the podcast to explore the psyche of the man-turned-monster who has captivated the world with his insatiable appetite for murder. Jillian Lauren is a writer, storyteller, adoption advocate, and more. She is the New York Times bestselling author of the memoirs Everything You Ever Wanted and Some Girls, My Life in a Harem, and the novel Pretty. Jillian Lauren was also the only journalist to extensively interview Samuel Little, the most prolific serial killer in American history. This experience is chronicled in Joe Berlinger's hit Stars documentary series Confronting a Serial Killer and in Michael Connolly's podcast Murder Book, The Women Who Brought Down Samuel Little. Her book, Behold the Monster, Confronting a Killer, is forthcoming in 2022. Jillian has an MFA in creative writing from Antioch University. Her writing has appeared in New York Magazine, The New York Times, Vanity Fair, The Paris Review, The Los Angeles Times, Los Angeles Magazine, Elle, Flaunt Magazine, The Daily Beast, Salon, and many others. Her work has been widely anthologized, including The Moth Anthology and True Tales of Lust and Love. Jillian is a regular storyteller with The Moth and performs at spoken word and storytelling events across the country. She did a TEDx talk about adoption and identity at Chapman University in 2014. She has been interviewed on The View, Good Morning America, and Howard Stern, to name a few. Jillian is married to Weezer bass player Scott Schreiner, and they live in Los Angeles with their two sons. Jillian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Samuel Little confessed to murdering 93 people. And as astonishing as that is, this case is so complex. Perhaps you can give us an overview of the case so we understand more about it. Like what was his MO and what was his victim profile and so on? Samuel Little had a uh, a four-decade killing spree and a six-decade crime spree all across this country um, in which he continually evaded justice for the most egregious of his crimes, which 
were murder, uh, rape, assault of women, uh, and, and kept doing time for shoplifting, um, and, and minor offenses. He was a, a petty criminal as far as the cops were concerned. And, um, you know, he did over six decades, less than 10 years. Um, before he was arrested in 2012, um, and identified as a serial killer by, um, Detective Mitzi Roberts at the Los Angeles Police Department. So I've watched some of the video of his confessions, and I was shocked at the startling level of detail he was able to provide about each victim, from clothing to height and weight to location details. Mm-hmm. With so many of the victims, it's it just seems astounding that he could recall these types of details for each one. Yeah. And he ta- he also impressed me because he talked about each victim as if he was having like some fond memories of spending time with them. He's at, at times he's smiling, he's laughing, yeah. as if he's recounting you know happier times in his life. And of one of the victims. He even said how much he loved her. Yeah. So what does all of that tell us about him? Well, I mean, what Sam chooses to tell you and how he chooses to portray uh, uh, women and these victims and his murders, um, you can't trust that uh, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um He does indeed come across very affable. I wrote in my book that just many times, even though I knew the end of the story that was coming, I thought that still irrationally this might be the one that got away. When Sam was confessing to me as as an investigative journalist uh which is you know we're different from his confessions to law enforcement um because i was asking him different kinds of questions that speak more toward uh what you're looking at which is you know criminal um and and deviant psychology so how how did you get involved in the case to begin with I got involved by accident. (laughs) I don't know if I would again. I don't know how I couldn't, but uh, um, I really had no idea what was in store for me. I was interviewing a, uh, I was interviewing Detective Mitzi Roberts of uh, LAPD's Robbery Homicide Division, a legendary detective, the Michael Connelly character, Renee Ballard, is based on her Mm -hmm. um and uh she's she's a tough interview to get so i was excited i was working on a novel a mystery novel and she had some specific knowledge for me and in my uh in my interview with her i always try to end on an up note make people feel good about themselves especially if you've been talking about violence yeah murder and things. So I said, what are you most proud of in your career? And she said, well, I'm proud of all of them. 
I did catch a serial killer once though, and that was pretty cool. And I was, whoa, 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 whoa. Of course, it's always when the check's coming, you know? Right. I said, we buried the lead here. How did I miss this? And she said, well, I wasn't the one asking the questions. But I said, okay, so, um, you know, just just give me the facts. And she did. And he was identified through a Department of Justice grant uh, that was given to the LAPD to screen cold cases for DNA as DNA technology was was advancing and LAPD has really well preserved evidence. So um, as they were routinely screening cases, they came up with these three DNA hits for Sam. Um, so uh, she was able, and Beth Silverman, the prosecutor at that point, decided to indict. He was, they had to chase him down across the country. It was very dramatic. He's a transient. Mm -hmm. So uh, they were two days behind him all the time. Um, and, um, and when they, when they got him, um, she knew that he was guilty of many more murders and she tried to mobilize interest across the country in different police jurisdictions saying, you know, this guy did not just murder these three women in LA. There's no way. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and she just knew it and, and, and people got involved, you know, different detectives, but no one really to the point of, uh, of pursuing anything to uh, any kind of conclusion. And, you know, Sam was put away for three consecutive life sentences and then there it lay for years. And so when I talked to Mitzi and she said, uh, you know, I, I believe he's good for many, many more murders across the country, I thought, well, as a journalist, could I put some heat on this story now, you know, maybe things are different. Maybe I could, um, give it a different angle. Um, particularly like how this man chose his victims, um, by their marginalized status and his assumption that nobody would care. And, um, and so New York magazine said, okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> We're not promising you anything, but give it a shot. And that's when I started corresponding with Sam. So w what does that look like when you're corresponding with Sam? Did, did you just write him a letter? Yep. I wrote him a letter. I said I was a journalist. Um, that uh, I was a journalist, that I was interested in criminal deviance. I was interested in violent crime. I didn't say, I believe you're guilty, because at that point he professed his innocence. And I said, um, you know, I, I most of all, I'm a storyteller and I really want to hear your story. So it takes a while to get cleared to visit a, a prison, a men's maximum security prison in mm -hmm. California. And so as that 
paperwork was going through, uh, he and I continued this correspondence, during which he maintained his innocence, but uh, you know, got a little creepy crazy um, and, uh, and seemed pretty unstable at times. And um, so when I visited him, he lied to me for three hours and then I left. I went back. And I was like, if I can't crack him, if I can't get him talking to me, I'm not driving two hours out to Lancaster at four in the morning on a Sunday to talk to this, um, you know, what I believed was to talk to this serial killer. And, uh, and then that second day he started talking. So, um, and thus began my, my journey with Sam Little. Wow, I have so many questions based on everything that you just said. And, and <laughs> that was long-winded, but it's it's a tough story to um, summarize. It's it's hard. There are ninety-three victims. It's such an expansive case that that um, you know, like covers so many decades. So I try to be pithy and concise, but it doesn't really work very well. <laughs> well, let's back up for a minute. Okay. Um, how did you know he was lying to you? Well, I, I mean, the case was an airtight case. Was the he was he lying he, to you because he was denying? Oh, yeah. He, he said I'm innocent. Oh, okay. They, okay. Framed, they framed me. Mm-hmm. That's it. They always framed him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I, I have to explain to criminals sometimes that there's actually a difference between being framed and being caught. (laughs) (laughs) No, they just popped you is what happened. But, uh, you know, he has, so he has a real diatribe about it and, um, had a lot of vitriol toward the LAPD. And, uh, that's what the Texas Ranger used when he was eliciting his confessions from Sam. So, um, that when law enforcement went in to talk to him, they used that to uh, sort of get him talking. We we use different methodologies. So when you said he was being like creepy, crazy in letters, can you give us an example? Well, for instance... Um, his handwriting changes dramatically. I mean, sometimes in one letter, but from letter to letter, they could be completely different people. Um, like one is, you know, fairly kind of old timey. He was an old guy. He mm-hmm. died when um, he was 81 when he died. And uh, like old kind of nice cursive or complete serial killer, all capitals. And he portrayed himself, he drew himself as well. Oh. But he would draw these, yeah. Um, I actually got him to do self-portrait. I have the, I have the only one he's ever done. Because uh, I wanted to see how he saw himself differently from how he saw the victims. I have, um, yeah, I have over a hundred of his drawings. And, um, 
So, uh, yeah, those are those are really good examples of creepy crazy. I get it. Oh yeah, creepy crazy. Oh, so. <laughs> no, I get I get it. And I'm I'm, I'm almost I'm almost afraid to ask what what did the the self portrait look like? Well, uh, well, the real self portrait he drew is his best drawing, which is so interesting. But mm-hmm. the drawings he did on the letters to me, mm-hmm. he did that he drew himself. Um, with these really big ears, uh, and, and I used to call it like the happy monkey or the sad monkey. And if it was a sad, if the monkey was sad and there were tears, uh, then like he was mad, mm-hmm. um, mad at you, like, mad at you for something. Yes. Yeah. That was him, you know, so, and he would the letters themselves would sort of tumble down the page. Um, Mm. And sometimes he was incredibly articulate. um, And sometimes he was absolutely like, I will eat your heart out of you in hell. I will crawl through the phone and, you know, eat your lips off your face. I will snap you into like really... You know, it's me and you forever in heaven with all of his victims, all of his babies, he called them. He thinks that he'll he'll be reunited with them in heaven in a big mansion. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's and, a, that is kind of creepy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've got a bunk reserved, apparently. <laughs> but, Yeah. It was a that is a know. a bunk you just really don't want. Um, nah. So, <laughs> so I mean, obviously, you had to build a relationship with him in order to sure. to gain his trust. How were yeah. you able to do that? Did, was it just a matter of time, spending time? Yes. Ultimately, it was time. I I think that's a great observation that most people don't make. Um, because people love the idea that I'm magic. Hmm. Um, you know, I, that, you know, it's some um, silence of the lambs, you know. Yeah, yeah. Role play, right? Which, I, I mean, I, I can't say that it didn't resemble that in some ways, really, you know, in some eerie ways. Um, but, but it wasn't that. It, and... It was building slowly a trust with him as much as he was capable of trusting somebody because he absolutely did not trust me, you know, as as a baseline. Mm-hmm. And I would always say that to him. I was like, Sam, you... You never trust me. You always, you know, go on these paranoid spirals, but I've never given you reason not to. Like, you don't trust me because mm-hmm. you're not trustworthy. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, I just, um, I took the time. I told him I wouldn't leave and I didn't. I said, if you tell me the truth, if you give me something good, you know, I told him exactly what I was doing from the minute I was there. I was like, I was like, what do you want the world to know about you? You're on your way out. 
old man. What do you want the world to know? <laughs> and and uh, he's like, uh, that I loved women. I worshipped women. I'm not a bad guy. I'm not a... And I'm just like, okay, well, guess what? Guess who's going to pay me for that book? Mm-hmm. No one. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's not like, a, por- that's not gonna, a portrait you, you can paint. Give me, are you going to give me a book? Or are you not going to give me a book? <laughs> because if you're going to give me a book and you're going to be as honest with me as you can, uh, I'll stick around. You're not going to die alone. I'll stick around till you die. Do you feel like he, he looked forward to the conversations with you after you had built a, you know, kind of a level yeah, of he, I mean, he trust? lived for them. Mm-hmm. I was his journalist. He got fancy on the yard. Um, you know, he had put together a woman come visit him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but, you know, it's a fairly low bar. Um, (laughs) enough said (laughs) and um and we had a really unique relationship he's fascinating he's smart it wasn't it wasn't always such a uh chore to talk to him you know, it didn't always turn me inside out. Now, by the end, that I think it was it was cumulative, and I really needed to walk away for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, he's he's bright, he's charming. His stories are fascinating. They took me all over the country. You know, I mean, I was through Sam's eyes and then on my own, I went and visited these places, you know, in a small steel town in Ohio in the 40s and 50s in a, uh, you know, in a reform school, a boys reform school inside uh, one of the country's most infamous prisons where they shot Shawshank Redemption didn't know it's a it's a museum now Mm -hmm. um you know and and i'm walking through that place like counting the cells i was like if you count three up and two over that was sam's cell and below it was you know i remember him describing you know somebody um who murdered himself he set himself on fire and that description and and obviously it was horrifying and the the you know recounting of murder after murder um was uh was kind of everything it was horrifying it was uh it i got to ask questions that when do you ever get to ask mm-hmm. like really ask like, why didn't you bury him? How'd you decide? You know, how do you get rid of a body and have somebody tell you the truth? Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, to those questions anyway. Um, and uh, it was fascinating. And also I saw, you know, m- potential to, um, to flip the script 
so to speak. So eventually then he admits to you that he did commit these crimes. Yeah. Did he ever at any point seem remorseful? No. Uh, there's no remorse there. It, it Yes, yes, he does seem remorseful. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, Sam's a psychopath. We're delving into the psychology of it. That's um, and while I think it's it's widely misunderstood and portrayed in broad strokes, that lack of empathy um, really is pretty astounding when you come up against it. Um, you know that I mean, really, he was the victim. In all, in all of his stories, he's the victim and that's what he believes. And, you know, he has remorse for himself that he was born this way, that he was born with these urges. He didn't make himself like this. God made him like this. He feels remorse for himself that he had to do this. And, uh, and he feels remorse that he got caught which isn't remorse, but that's what he says. Um, and no. So not he remorseful does. for the lives that no. he took. Absolutely not. He, he'll, I mean, he'll talk about it all day long with you know, detectives from jurisdictions all over the country about how he's right with God. And that's the only person who needs to forgive him. Um, and, uh, you know, and he has always believed himself forgiven. He said he, he asked for God's forgiveness as he killed these women. And so he was forgiven. Um, he was very into the idea of, um, what was it? St. Paul who, uh, fell off his horse Mm -hmm. And, you know, from the stirrup to the ground, he's something lost and something found. That was, he's like, I, you know, in the middle of my depravity, I'm saved. So uh, that's, that's his, that's his version. Uh, I asked him at one point if he felt like his victim's uh, should forgive him. Like you, okay, you're forgiven at that moment. Like, should they forgive you? And he said to me, well, I would hate to see where they're going if they didn't. Wow. Um, yeah. That, this all speaks That's the time that you want to crawl across the table and take his eyes out of his head. Yeah, you know? it speaks volumes about his yeah. his character and his state of mind um, and well women were objects that is the women were objects and they want and it's it was it was coveting you know they had to belong to him he wanted to own them own them own them and this is the ultimate way to do it to control the very breath they breathe and also i really want to point out that when we say women, uh, it, there are transgender women also amongst Sam's victims. It's a particularly 
uh, brutalized population of women, um, transgender women of color, and very easy to get away with, certainly in the 70s and 80s, and um, uh, are often misgendered mm-hmm. um, and very hard to identify. So, um, you know, Sam, Sam didn't care. If you if you looked enough to him like a woman, that was that was his criteria. So that actually is a, a area I wanted to ask you about about the transgender victims, um, and if we can learn anything from the fact that he was you know he didn't discriminate really. I mean, if you looked like a woman right. and you walked like a woman, then you may be a victim that he would target. Yeah. Yeah, if you, uh, and um, I mean, speaking about deviant psychology and and Sam was a true predator. That was what being around him was like. Um, So even there in- Now, if I had my period. So the way that he would identify people was more about their vulnerability than mm-hmm. any particular, you know, he wasn't a Ted Bundy. He would he'll always say, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, or he would say to me, you know, I didn't go and kill no fancy New York journalists or governors or senators or college girls. Um, he said, I, I stuck to my own neighborhood, um, and that is, I mean, that was his whole strategy, and it worked for that long. Did that somehow rationalize it for him, you know, by staying in his own neighborhood and, you know, kind of keeping a low profile? Uh, it didn't rationalize. He didn't need rationalization. His only rationalization was wanting. So he was a sexual strangler. So you asked about M.O. Mm-hmm. Um uh, it is, it, there's sort of like a, uh, a reductive narrative where he, because he was a boxer, people like to pick up on that. He was a prison boxer that he would always knock women out and then, you know, immobilize them and then strangle them. And, um, and, and I don't think that was always true, but the method of killing was always strangulation. Um, and, uh, and it was all about, it was all about control. Sam was all about control and he was he was he was sort of organized and sort of disorganized in that sort of you want to put it in like criminal minds mm-hmm. um, that really all he had to do was spot the victim, you know, like the one the one who was desperate enough to get in the car. And there are studies that predators can identify victims by how they walk um, it, within fifteen seconds. And, and, and by victims, I mean, potential, potential prey, um, potential victims. Yeah. Like a vulnerability in someone that, that may guarantee you could be successful in getting them in the position that you want them. Right. 
Did you ever have the opportunity to discuss his past or his childhood and how that impacted his behaviors? Yeah. Um, I mean, I always think people ask, you know, why, 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 why? Mm -hmm. That's the that's the first question and you know i kind of have an answer um without a very satisfying conclusion but um it's it's neurological and genetic you know sam was born um in georgia in rural georgia in 1940 um his family moved north during the first great migration and uh and began working at a steel plant in lorraine ohio um he was raised by his paternal grandparents who he thought were his parents it was definitely a dysfunctional family situation um there was early sexual abuse uh by an uncle in the family according this is all according to sam Mm-hmm. Um, and, and confirmed by some family members, uh, that this uncle, at least, uh, whether or not Sam was, I don't know that anyone had direct knowledge of it, mm-hmm. but, um, that it wasn't surprising. And, uh, and then he wound up in a reform school when he was 13, which was famously abusive. Um, you know, where boys, it was a half military kind of establishment, but the, uh, it was called the boys industrial school in Ohio. And, uh, he, for stealing a bicycle, he was there from when he was 13 for a year and a half. And, uh, and of course you, you talk to criminals and, you know, it was everyone else who was getting raped and everyone else who was getting beaten, certainly never him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think there was probably some traumatic brain injury based on what I've heard about the beatings he got. And, um, uh, and then he came back and what his family says is that he was never right after that, but also he was kind of never right to begin with. Mm-hmm. They say, you know, he was nothing but trouble since the day he was born. And um, his family says that anytime Sammy came around, he would always have uh, like a bag full of goodies like Santa because he was a booster, he was a shoplifter. Mm -hmm. And he'd bring, you know, art supplies and shoes and stuff for all the kids and then disappear. And, uh, you know, the cop showed up three days later every single time. So I think he was abused. He was, he was certainly lied to. His uh, mother was a prostitute. His biological mother was a prostitute rooming house owner in Coconut Grove in Florida, who he didn't meet until he was 25 years old. Um, couldn't have sex with women. That could have sex with women maybe once or twice and then so he told you that that he was unable oh yeah no he because he the strangling was sex for him that was the sex he couldn't you know the the lapd the detectives working on the case and this is in no way a poor reflection on him at all but um they call him the choke and stroke 
killer when they were hunting him down. Because uh-huh. um, that was his MO. He would, uh, and that is also why he's hard to track down through DNA because he didn't leave a rape kit. Exactly. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So let's talk about the portraits because I've seen some of the portraits. I guess many, Mm -hmm. many listeners have seen them as well. Um, Were they helpful at all in determining motive? Were they drawn before the victims were murdered or long after? What's going on with that? Long after. So So these were drawn um, from memory. Done from memory. Um, He has been drawing since he was in the Ohio State Reformatory. Um, So in his early 20s, he he traded drawing lessons for boxing lessons. And um, he has always drawn when he's incarcerated. But doesn't particularly draw when he well when he wasn't when he was free and running around. Um, those the drawings of the victims were done for the investigation, for the most part. Now, I have a bunch of drawings that I have from before the confessions and before the investigation, and there are a handful of victims in there, but they're also Rihanna and Condoleezza Rice and Tupac and uh, a pharaoh and a baby in a helmet. I mean, there he does not disappoint um, <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> like a dead girl floating in space. You know <laughs> those things. Um, were they, were they of these drawings used to kind of help well, analyze his his uh, behavior? Um, no, but what they were used for was to identify victims. Mm-hmm. So because he has this, it's not perfect. You know, he, it, people make this, uh, you know, he had a photographic memory or this perfect memory. And then anytime that comes into question, people question the whole endeavor. Um, But he, and it wasn't perfect. It was just uncanny. Um, So there would often be a detail off or confused between victims. There were a lot of them. And many of them he didn't see for more than, um, you know, a couple hours, if that. But... um, there are some that are truly remarkable and and I know the FBI is circulating them and you know trying to get people interested and looking and hoping to uh, get tips from the public and that's fbi.gov they're they're actively asking and you can see these portraits on their website yeah, I, that's a great resource, and some of the uh, taped interviews with him with the Texas mm-hmm. Ranger are on there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, did he ever receive a medical diagnosis for a mental illness? No. Uh, and I, I, you know, have been 
filing a lot of paperwork trying to ultimately get all his medical records, which I'm entitled to, but it's always hard. That that kind of paperwork's always hard. Um, no. According to him, no. Uh, but, you know, I, I imagine it's, it's the dark triad. Um, I'm no diagnostician. Uh, my aunt's a very famous diagnostician, and she says that... Um, you know, a, a diagnosis is always a moving target, but, um, but you know, typically for serial killers um, and 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 people capable of that kind of egregious level of um, just violence for gratification uh, are Machiavellian, narcissistic. Uh, and have antisocial personality disorder, um, and those uh, those are the clinical designations. Mm -hmm. So that's called the the dark triad, um, and uh, and they all have it. There's a a wonderful doctor um, named Dr. Del Paulus, um, and he studies evil, and he ha has added a sneaky sister to the dark triad uh, oh. um, and is posing the idea that in fact it's a dark tetrad and um, he has come up with uh, a diagnosis of everyday sadism mm -hmm. uh, or casual sadism and he tends to you know look for the connective tissue I think uh, between these monsters we've identified, right? Like Sam is a monster. The When everyone asked me why, 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 you know, I mean, I just told you, A, he came that way genetically. B, due to many environmental factors, those genes got activated that were violent, addictive, uh, uh, he has, you know, his brain functions differently. You know, there's just not enough frontal lobe activity. There's too much reptile brain activity, um, plus head injury, plus sexual abuse, plus abuse, um, plus neglect. And, you know, it's like you have your perfect cocktail, but not everyone who does that or not everyone who experiences those sorts of horrors turn into the most prolific serial killer in American history. No, for sure. I mean, he, he definitely... There's this extra piece that, you know, everyone likes to bandy about um, and say, you know, you look into Sam's eyes and, and you know you're in the presence of pure evil. And uh, I'm like, really? I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know that I felt that. I don't know about pure evil, but evil yeah I, yeah I, I, I really did like i just like i can give you so i've seen the brain scans of psychopaths i've you know done very like deep scientific kind of dive into this and uh and there still is that mysterious piece and it really feels like evil to me 
Yeah, I think that definitely the perfect cocktail is a great way to describe it. Yeah. And it's, it's all the levers got pulled on on that case uh, and yeah. ma- making him a sexual deviant killer. Yeah, um, yeah but I, I love the, the everyday sadism idea because it, you know, Sam's, Sam's a human being. You know, people say he's a monster, he's a monster. He's a human being. And all those same you know, forces and potentialities and lurking things in our genetics um, are possibilities for all of us. And, you know, that that mysterious piece, that evil piece, uh, you know, I, I do think is something that um, is something we all share. It's in there. Yeah. And for some people, it's activated and others... It just isn't. Yeah. Um, and, and you were featured in a docuseries uh, confronting a killer about Samuel Little on mm-hmm. Stars. Did you learn any more details about Samuel Little that you, you didn't already know while working uh, on that docuseries? Well, um, when I, I started working in a different medium, um, I'm a print journalist and uh an author and so working in a different medium and having to kind of gather more visual and audio uh i think was a different kind of like rigor and a different sort of um a a more public version of my process you know normally i get to go and do my interviews and and work my way into people's lives very slowly which is what i do um and uh you know and get my story my own way and, and in this way it felt accelerated um having uh you know the documentation piece there um and, you know, and so it, it definitely lit a fire under my ass. It was wild that they were happened to be there. The crew was in New York, so they weren't with me all the time. And I had to tell them, I cannot produce a murder solve for you. Like, I can't make things happen <laughs> when you're in town. <laughs> um, and then they did happen to be there when the the murder that you know i really uh i mean there were a few that i i'm honored to have participated in this one is just very very close to my heart and uh that was alice duval and um and that was captured and that was cool i was really i'm really proud of that i'm i i mean i was just so i was so proud of that and it was gratifying and and I'm glad that's on camera. The rest was hard. It was hard having, you know, a camera up my tush. <laughs> and <laughs> and having to also, you know, like be be a writer and be affected by this stuff and um 
you know, and, and, and let people into that. And normally I want to have control over that narrative. So it was letting go of it a little bit. And, uh, it, and it was fascinating. I learned a ton and I solved a murder and, um, it was, it was cool to bounce ideas off of people. Um, not just my favorite medium, but it was an amazing experience. Yeah, it sounds very intense. Uh, let's also talk a little bit about your book, Behold the Monster, that is releasing yeah. in 2022. I've read that your purpose for the book is more than just to discuss this, you know, the story of Samuel Little. It's also to give voice to his victims. I'd love to hear from you about why that is important to you. Uh, well, that, that's a central piece of what's important to me, it is to, to explore and to honor and to amplify uh, the voices that were silenced for so long, these victims who were ignored. Um, it wasn't only that he wasn't caught for all those years. Um, he was caught. They had him on murder. They had him, uh, and a grand jury failed to indict. They had him on murder again, and a jury of his peers, uh, a jury of his peers acquitted him. They had him on attempted two victims, attempted murder, assault, kidnapping. He served 18 months, got out, and killed two women that same night. And... I point out to people, I think it's very popular to say, you know, and certainly it was true in Mississippi, the police, you know, I've talked to them and they said, you are right. In Pascagoula, Mississippi in 1989, it was not possible to commit a crime against a black prostitute. It wasn't a crime, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm like, so it's very easy to say, you know, it's it's the man, right? It's it's the police. But the fact is, I'm like, he, no, he he was acquitted by a jury of his peers more than once. It's us. It's all of us. So, you know, and and we really need to look at that. It's not just Sam Little. It's what allowed him to operate the kind of social assumptions of how we assign worth to people and particularly women in marginalized uh, and compromised positions. Um, and so uh, that is like, it's not, a, I'm never a message driven author. You know, I'm, I'm really much more, uh, I'm character driven. I'm emotionally driven. I'm, I love research and deep dives into deviant psychology. Um, but you know, so I'm not here on a soapbox. Um, but I do, uh, you know, I, I switch back and forth between perspectives in the book. Um, mine, the detectives, um, the the FBI, the 
victims, Sam's perspective, you know, and I try to really look at it from, um, you know, I, I take, I take some license and, uh, well-researched license and try to look at it from all those perspectives and, and make it three-dimensional, make it alive for people. Um, you know, it's not just Sam who thought these women were objects or, you know, not, not worth, not worth thinking about. You make some really excellent points about how the system is part of the problem and supportive of deviant behavior in different ways. And so Sam failed himself, he failed his victims, but the system failed all of us uh, in this That's particular so case. That's true. And also, uh, you know, one of his, uh, to that point, one of his biggest killing grounds, as he calls them, um, or killing fields, he was uh, Los Angeles, down uh, South Central Los Angeles um, in the 80s and early 90s. And there were no fewer than seven serial killers operating in that area of Los Angeles at the same time prostitutes were turning up in dumpsters every morning. Wow. And, uh, you know, and, and it was a result of the neighborhood being ravaged by crack, uh, the subsequent war on drugs, which, you know, imposed far steeper sentences for drugs used in minority communities, left a community bereft of young men and Figueroa Street crawling with prostitutes. And, uh, and, and it was, you know, it was just easy pickings for predators. Incredible. Jillian, where can people learn more about your work? Well, you can go to my website at JillianLauren.com. Um, I'm, you know, I go on and off the social media, but, um, I'm really, I'm, I'm very passionate about this project now. So I am, uh, I'm definitely available on Instagram, Jillian Lauren, uh, Twitter, Jilly Lauren, Facebook, if you do that, <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, and keep an eye out for the book. And you can sign up for my newsletter on, because uh, we're going to have a release date very soon. So you can sign up for my newsletter on my website. And I send it almost never. Oh. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that's not for you. That's because I just don't want to. <laughs> So uh, it's, I send it very infrequently, but I will let you know when you can learn more. And, and, and there's a lot of developments happening still with the little cases, even though um, he's obviously gone. Yeah, there is so much uh, still happening in that investigation. And I'm glad you mentioned your website because it's a, it's actually a really beautiful website. Thank you. And I did, I'm the newest subscriber to your I'll Never Get a Newsletter from Jillian Lauren <laughs> Club. And I'm so looking forward uh, to the book and hopefully talking with you again soon. Thank you for joining me today. 
Thank you so much for having me. The FBI is asking for the public's help to continue to identify all of the victims murdered by Samuel Little. You can find more information about the crimes, the criminal, and how to report an anonymous tip about this case on their website, fbi.gov. Interested in learning more about the topics you've heard on this podcast? Visit www.conferencecaw.org for details about the Conference on Crimes Against Women and other upcoming training opportunities. And follow us on social media at National CCAW. You can also register now for the 2022 Conference on Crimes Against Women on May 23rd through the 26th in Dallas, Texas. We look forward to seeing you there.